Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that as we hear this passage read, that we would know that it is indeed the word of God, and that it would arrest our attention. And Father, that we begin to think uh, your thoughts, and that we begin to ask questions that will help us to understand you better. And Father, that you would supply those answers that we might know the truth. And Father, this truth would indeed set us free. So Father, we pray that you would please work that in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Acts in chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, please. I want to read this whole chapter. I worked through about a little more than half of it last Sunday. I want to pick up the end, but I want to uh, read the whole thing so that you can uh, see it all. Acts in chapter 3, please. hear the word of God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gates out of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, 
and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sends him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now you remember last week we introduced this and you remember, remember that, that what took place was that there was a man who was lame. He'd been lame from birth, never walked. At this point in time, he was something over 40 years old. Chapter 4 in Acts tells us. Peter and John were going to pray as they would to the temple. Uh, they understood, no doubt, that the temple was no longer necessary in the old sense. Jesus had come. Sacrifices were no longer necessary. The priests were no longer necessary. Um, the um, place of propitiation uh, in the Holy of Holies was no longer necessary. Uh, but yet still they would go there to pray. It was a great gathering place. It was their culture. And they would go, no doubt, to meet other believers in Christ there uh, to pray. So they went to pray. Upon going to pray, they saw this man who had been carried by his friends uh, in front of this gate, near this gate, uh, in order to beg. Uh, that was all he could do. He was excluded, no doubt, from the uh, economic uh, foundation of, of Israel uh, because he couldn't walk. Uh, he was excluded even from the religious area because he couldn't go into the temple. No one took him there. They took him just there to beg so he could get enough money in order to live. And as Peter and John came upon him, the man looked at them and he asked for money. Uh, the scripture says that Peter gazed at him, John gazed at him. You get a sense that they knew at that point in time by the Holy Spirit that they were to heal this man, that Jesus wanted to heal this man. Uh, they didn't look at anybody else. They looked at him. We don't know if there are others there. Probably so. But they gazed upon him. And that was their, uh, their call, their attention at that point in time. It must have been that the Spirit of God directed them to look to him to know that Jesus would heal him. Because Peter didn't pray that this man be healed. Peter didn't ask this man if he wanted to be healed. This man did not ask Peter to be healed. He essentially asked Peter for money. He may have been disappointed when Peter said, I don't have any money. For that moment in time, his heart may have sunk because he had seen this person actually look at him and, and, and there was no money involved. But Peter, of course, said, we don't have any money, but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. Again, it wasn't a prayer, it was a command. It was as if Peter knew that he had the authority to use the name of Jesus in order to bring healing to this man. And again, we shouldn't think of this casually. Think about it. This man couldn't walk. He couldn't walk from birth. No one had been able to help him walk. It was utterly impossible. His, his body was physically incapable of walking. And Peter had the audacity to command him in the name of Jesus, meaning if he didn't do it, it would be disobedient to God to get up and walk. He commanded him to do something that was physically impossible for him to do. And then, because Peter had faith, he reached down, he pulled the man up, and the man walked. And it was an amazing sight, no doubt, for everyone to see. And the scripture says that not only did he walk, but he leapt, meaning he was filled with great joy. And he praised God. Of course he did. Who else could he thank in the midst of this? Why wouldn't he be thinking, who am I that God is mindful of me to actually heal me and enable me to walk? His whole life would therefore be changed by that one act of physical healing. He now probably would no longer need to beg. He could actually work. He could get where he wanted to go without having been to be carried. He could enter even into the temple area on his own two feet. 
he could walk. Everything from that point on in this man's life would be changed, would be different. He once was in misery because of his lameness that excluded him from everything, and now he could enter in because God was mindful of him, and God healed him, all of this, in the name of Jesus. The question is, what are we to think of this? How are we to understand this? And in one sense, we can see the meaning by how Luke describes in chapter 2 what the apostles were doing. And remember he said that the people who had come to faith on that day of Pentecost devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. And then Peter, uh, Luke goes on to say that, the, that many signs and wonders were being done uh, by the apostles through the apostles. So, so things were happening that were causing people to sit back and wonder and just to, just to suck the air right out of them. Who can do this other than God? And they were signs that, it was, that they were to point away from themselves and point, in fact, to God. And so we can think about this as signs point to Jesus. Jesus himself used miracles as signs to point to himself and to point to our need and to point to his remedy. For instance, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a little bit of food, he fed thousands of people. And that was a great wonder and sign. People would wonder at that. How can this happen? It was a sign. It pointed to who he was. And he used it as such by saying that he himself was the bread of life. He said, you know, this is bread that can feed you, but, but, but there's more where that came from, but not simply this tangible bread made out of flour, but there's spiritual bread. And if you come to me, you'll never hunger. There was a man who had been born blind, and Jesus gave him sight. And in doing so, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, though you might walk in darkness. I'm the light of the world. And so he showed to us our darkness, our blindness, and he showed that he was the solution to that, as the very Son of God, that he brought light, that he brought sight, so that we could see God. His friend Lazarus had been dead for a number of days, and he went to the tomb of Lazarus, and he raised him from the dead. And in so raising him from the dead, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, you'll live if you believe in me. And so those signs pointed to who Jesus was. Those signs pointed to our particular need for spiritual food, to be able to see God and to have our blindness taken away and, and, and to have life out of deadness, the deadness that's caused by sin, the deadness that's our condemnation because of our sin where God takes life away because we misuse it. And Jesus, of course, is the solution to all of that. And so we look at this layman, and in a sense, last week, we just, we just briefly touched, you might remember, on the fact that, that, that we too are spiritually lame. We're just as hopeless, just as helpless as this man. Uh, we, we, we can't do anything for ourselves. In fact, uh, the scripture even says that we're not even seeking God, as he was not even seeking healing. No one seeks God, the scripture says. And yet God in his graciousness has come to us in Christ and taken the penalty for our sin and given us the righteousness of Christ. All his work. Utterly hopeless and helpless are we. But yet Jesus comes and by his spirit enables us 
gives us life. Uh, the man was filled with joy. We too should be filled with great joy. Charles Simeon, an old dead guy, uh, said, if the healing of a man's body brings joy, what of the healing of a man's soul? Now, Peter doesn't do that with this passage, however, with this event. He doesn't go on to say, hey, here's how I want you to understand this. When he preaches about it, he doesn't say, here's how I want you to understand it. I think it's valid to understand it that way, but that's, that's not the purpose here. We could also look at this passage and wonder, is it here so that we would know that we have the same authority to use the name of Jesus that Peter did so that there should be none sick among us. There should be none in trouble among us. But when we see such difficulties, we should go to one another and we should say, be healed or get up and walk or whatever it is that the need is in the name of Jesus. That doesn't appear to be the point either. Peter doesn't spend time talking about that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't then explain this situation by saying the reason we did this was by way of illustration so that you believers would know that you have authority like this in the name of Jesus. In fact, we find this to be quite unique. Even as we read through the book of Acts, there are miracles like this that take place, but they're not pervasive. And the name of Jesus seems not to be used like this in these various situations that there are actually six people who aren't healed. We know that in our own experience. But yet we do know at this particular point in time, there is a sense in which, because Jesus is alive, that this healing takes place in the name of Jesus to show that he really is alive. And that's really the point here. Luke writes this book, Acts. That's his second volume, as we know. First volume being the Gospel of Luke. Gospel according to Luke. And now he's writing this to this man, Theophilus, to whom he addressed his first work as well. And he's writing it to show what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. In the Gospel of Luke, he writes to Theophilus to kind of lay out, so that, lay all this out so that Theophilus, Theophilus would know that what he had heard about Jesus was really true. And now he writes Acts for Theophilus to say, in my first volume I wrote about what Jesus had begun to do and teach, implied, therefore, he's going to show what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, which Jesus can only do because Jesus is alive. And so he writes to show that Jesus is alive and what he's continuing to do by way of the Holy Spirit through these apostles, through his disciples. And the point there, the theme then that Luke is developing is that these disciples of Jesus, these apostles of Jesus, are going to be witnesses that Jesus is alive in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so, so we have to understand everything that Luke includes in that context. We have to understand everything that Luke includes, because he can include all kinds of things. I mean, he, he writes a, a, a history of the church that spanned decades in about 20 pages. And so there's a lot of stuff that he could include that he didn't include. So why does he include what he includes? Therefore, why does he include this particular healing? So that he could show that Jesus is alive. So that he could show how it is that his 
that the apostles of Jesus gave witness that Jesus was alive. And that's precisely what Peter does here. What Peter does as he begins to lay this out beginning in verse 17, his, his explanation is that Jesus is in fact alive. Notice what he says in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In other words, everything that was told about Jesus in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. And, 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 and Peter's saying, this healing proves it. And so your response, Peter goes on, then in verse 19 is, since this healing proves that, uh, you are to repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, Peter's point is this. This healing should cause you to repent. You should see this healing and repent. Now this whole message of repentance isn't a new one in the Bible, most especially not a new one in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist came on the scene in preparation for Jesus and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, as Jesus came on the scene, his very first words publicly in a sense were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In fact, as Jesus sent out his disciples on various mission trips, their message was to the people to be repent. In fact, when Jesus was told of a great, two great tragedies that had taken place where some people had been killed while they'd been worshiping, where another situation where a tower had fallen on a number of people and they died, Jesus' response was, repent. In fact, we're told about joy in heaven. And Jesus tells the story about the lamb that was lost, the sheep that was lost, and the good shepherd going after it. And the point is that there's more joy in heaven over the one that repents. So joy in heaven comes because sinners repent, and so repentance is is key here. In fact, when Jesus gathers with his disciples after he's resurrected, and he's telling them what they're to do, He tells them that they're to preach this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all the nations. And so when Peter comes on the scene in Acts chapter 2 during that day of Pentecost and he preaches that first sermon and they say, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And here he says, repent. And when the gospel comes later to the Gentiles, that is, it goes out to the ends of the earth, what happens is that they repent. And when the apostle Paul, who isn't Paul then, but Saul of Tarsus is called by God to be his apostle, The message that he is to take to the nations is that they are to repent and turn from their sins. So repentance, you see, is crucial in all of this. And so Peter, no surprise, says that when you see this miracle, it should cause you to repent. Now repent has as its basic foundational meaning a sense of change. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew repent Uh, means uh, to change your course, to turn around, to go in the other direction. And the New Testament, in in, in the language uh, that it's written in, in Greek, has a sense of changing your mind. 
That is, that this is an intentional change. This is an understanding that you understand the change that you're to make. And so basically, when we talk about repentance, we're talking about a realization that you have been wrong. And there's this sense in which you now desire to be right, to go the other way. So there's a realization, I've been wrong. And now there's this sense, all right, I need to go the other way. I need to leave my wrongness behind. And I need to go in the way that is right. So there's this sense of change. There's a sense of movement. It isn't just an addition of something. Everything's fine. I'm just going to add this God component. That's the only thing missing in my life. Now the answer, the, the point is that when the God component, component enters, there's a realization that everything else that you've been is wrong. And there now needs to be a movement away from that, both in our understanding and in our lives. Now when repentance first comes, of course, it doesn't mean that you clean up your act in order to go to God. That isn't the point at all. It begins by this change, this understanding. It begins by this realization that I've been wrong for them as Peter comes to this particular group of people. And we mustn't miss this. For those of you who struggle with thinking that you've committed sin that cannot be forgiven, realize that the group of people to whom Peter is addressing, this group of people to whom Peter is offering the forgiveness of sins, is comprised of those very people who no doubt were in the crowd and yelled, crucify him. Because he says to them very directly, you killed the author of life. You denied the holy and righteous one. This isn't hypothetical language. This isn't rhetorical language. He's addressing a group of people who would hear that and say, oh yeah, you're right. yeah, yeah, that's what we did. You were there. And so now he's holding out to them and he's coming to them. Now he's saying, you've seen this miracle. You've seen this man rise up and walk. Now, what I'm telling you is that's showing you that everything that was talked about the Christ has been fulfilled in Jesus and now therefore you should repent. First and foremost, you should change all your thinking about him. Whatever you thought about him before was completely and utterly wrong. You thought that he was just a man. You thought that he was an imposter. Some of you thought he was a demon. Some of you uh, thought that he simply was a failure because he didn't fulfill that which he had come to do in your mind. You had this image of who the Christ would be and, and Jesus just didn't fit that image. And now Peter is saying, I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. You're utterly wrong. You thought that you could live your life without someone like this Christ. You thought you could live without someone who brought you the truth of God because in some sense you thought you already knew it. Or you could derive it on your own. But he was the prophet who brought you the truth and you didn't like that truth. You thought you could live without someone else giving you righteousness. You thought you could be righteous on your own. You didn't think you would need someone to come and live righteously for you and then give that to you. You thought 
You could, you could be righteous sufficiently on your own and that God would simply accept you because you were a child of Abraham, because you were born into the right family, because, because you had gone to the right schools and, and you could pass the right multiple choice test. You thought that you were all right, but you're completely wrong. And not only is this wrong from just sort of a technical, objective, legal standpoint, but because it's against God, it's wickedness. It isn't a morally neutral wrong like your brackets were wrong, you know, or you picked the wrong stock or picked the wrong baseball team or whatever, you answered some questions wrong in a math test, whatever that could be. Were, those, those are errors, those are, those are things that are wrong, you, you failed, you didn't, but, but, but that isn't wicked. Unless you didn't pick KU. But it isn't wicked, right? But this is wickedness. Because this is an offense against God. Because you've looked, in a sense, to God, though he says you were ignorant about it, your sin blinded you. But in a sense, you looked to God and you said, no, 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 you're not God. No, you don't, you don't fit my image of God. You're not God. And, and you rejected God himself. And you rejected, therefore, in the context of that, the very love of God. Peter says, that's wickedness. You need to turn from that. You need to realize it. You need to admit it. And, and once it begins to sink in that this isn't just an objective wrongness, but that this is wickedness and that it's against God, against this one who's loved you, then there's a sense of remorse in the midst of that as well. There's a sense of sorrow in the midst of that, sense of sadness, sense of grief. Oh, what have I done? Peter said, you need to repent. And then he said, turn again. That's the sense of change. That's the sense of movement. Okay, I'm, I'm going to, to, to turn away from these wrong, wicked thoughts of God, this wrong, wicked self-dependence of my whole life and ignoring God and leaving him out and not recognizing him when he stands right before me. I'm going to leave all that behind and I'm going to turn and, and go to him. Uh, and all that that means, to trust him and to rely upon him and to receive him and to receive from him his definition of who he is, not my own. And to turn away from my own self-reliance, my own self-dependence, and to trust in him. There's a sense that this is, for Peter, the logical response. Verse 18, he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. There's a sense in which he's saying, how can you not repent? Because of this, therefore, repent. And turn again. And so that's Peter's point here. And what is so utterly amazing here, that for me, I have, I have no words for other than to declare it and to proclaim it. But while they were denying the Holy and Righteous One, while they were killing the author of life, God was making provision for their salvation in that one event. The question is, why couldn't they see it? 
Why didn't they see it? Why must they see it now? On what basis could they even have hope of repentance and being forgiven their sins? Well, Peter begins in, in verse 17. He says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And so he's setting this out in language that they can understand. Because, you see, this is a very select group. This is a group of people who would be attending temple prayers at the end of the day. This is a group of people who would be religious Jews. This would be a group of people who in one sense would fashion themselves as knowing what the Old Testament was about, what the Old Covenant was all about. And so Peter could speak directly to them in this language. And so when he said to them, um, I know you acted in ignorance, what he's saying to them, what they would hear is, therefore there's atonement for your sins. Because in the Old Testament, you might remember, there was a distinction between two different categories of sins. There were sins called unintentional sins. Now, now that's a hard that's hard language. I don't I don't I don't know how else to express it. In the old language, it's unwitting sins. But it isn't so much that you sort of fall into sin and go, "Whoops, I didn't know that was a sin," because we know that's not how our lives are. But it's contrasted with what the Bible calls high-handed sins or intentional sins. And that expression, high-handed sins, helps us a great deal because a high-handed sin is the kind of sin where you raise your fist in the air to God and you say, I hate you. And I'm doing this because I want to do this against you. Scripture says there's no atonement for that. Read Numbers chapter 15. That might be the equivalent of what Jesus calls in the New Testament the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But here, these unintentional sins is everything else. It isn't that we didn't intend to sin, but in the whole context of our lives as we look at them, we're not thinking about them in the context of doing them directly against God to prove that we're greater than He is and to despise Him. In fact, Paul uses that language to describe his own life in 1 Timothy In chapter 1, he says this, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Uh, Again, we mustn't romanticize Paul's life. He was a murderer of Christians. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. You see, our sin blinds us. Our sin causes us to miss God. That's the very nature of sin. Jesus, when he speaks of sin, says if you sin, you're a slave to sin. That is, you're stuck in it. You can't see your way around it. It affects everything about you. And sin, by its very nature, says, I'm disregarding God. I'm turning away from God. I'm not following after Him. I don't desire to please Him. Jesus said, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They're in the midst of evil deeds. They can't see beyond that. The Apostle Paul says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this age, that Satan has blinded the eyes of those who are disobedient, blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so you see, sin doesn't make us stupid. It makes us foolish. It makes us think there is no God. It makes us ignorant of God, ignorant of ourselves. And so Peter says to them, you acted in ignorance. They know what that means. Okay, I see, all right? And now Peter's about to shed light so that, so that their ignorance in that sense uh, would in fact uh, be overcome. And so he says, I want to, to, to make sure you understand this. So in verse 22, uh, verse 21, he said about Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed uh, from the people. So he's saying, remember Moses. Remember on that day that he got the law. Remember how it was that the mountain shook. Remember how frightened the people were. Remember what they said. They said, Moses, we don't want to hear God's voice directly. Could you go up and listen and tell us what he said? We need someone to be an intercessor for us. We need somebody to be an intermediary for us because God's too scary on his face like that. And so that's when in Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses and the people, a day will come when I will give you another prophet like Moses and he will speak for me. But you know the test of a prophet. If what he prophesies doesn't come true, he's not from God. But if what he prophesies does come true, he is from God. And what was prophesied about Jesus and what Jesus prophesied about himself, that he would go into Jerusalem and that he would be um, arrested and that he would be beaten and that he would be killed and he would rise on the third day, happened. And the fact that that man is walking in the name of Jesus healed for Peter is proof that Jesus is alive and he said therefore listen to him in fact he says if you don't listen to this prophet Jesus as one who came like Moses to give the truth and to be the truth then you'll be destroyed their ignorance ended according to Peter now you know it's been laid out all of the testimony that is going to be given to you has been given to you and you must listen to this now. So repent, turn, change your mind, change your thinking about you, about God, about Jesus and turn to him. And then he goes on, he said, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Um, I'm sorry, well, verse 24. And all the prophets have spoken of him from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. And so, even if we just take Samuel himself, what did he say about Jesus? He said that there's going to be one who's going to come who's going to sit on this throne of David and rule forever. And where was Jesus born? But in the city of David. And he was exalted and ascended to where he's ruling and reigning on high. He's the ruler over all the people of God. And Peter's saying, even Samuel knew about this. And then he goes on to his trump card, which for uh, Jews is always Abraham. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that seed, that offspring, 
is Jesus, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And Peter is saying, listen, and I don't think Peter would preach this particular message to everybody, but given that particular group of people, he's saying, you should know this. You should see. Okay, you were ignorant before your sin had blinded you, and it was perhaps difficult to see at that point in time, given your expectations and all of that. But now look, right before your very eyes, this man walks in the name of Jesus. It wasn't my power and my piety, Peter says, nor John's that made this happen. And it certainly wasn't anything in this man. He wasn't even expecting this. But in the name of Jesus, something has happened that no one could ever imagine happening. And so... Jesus intended it. Jesus did it. Jesus is alive. Repent. Turn to him. And here's what will happen. Your sins will be blotted out, he says. Meaning they'll be erased. They won't be anymore. They would understand that. There was a, the ink that was used in those days. It's a little technical uh, cultural deal. But the ink that was used in those days didn't have acid in it. And it wouldn't penetrate into the papyrus. And so it could be easily erased with a damp cloth. And so if it was that kind of ink, which is referred to here, and this kind of a situation blotting out, a damp cloth, boom, just take it right off. And he says, that's what will happen to your sin. It'll be gone. Remember, he's talking to the people who had a hand in killing Jesus. He said, you'll be forgiven your sins. They'll be completely blotted out. And then he says something that it's only said like this here in the New Testament. And times of refreshing will come in his presence. Now you can say that's going to happen in glory and it certainly will. But you get the sense that he's saying that when your sins are blotted out because of your repentance and all of that, that there's a sense of refreshing that comes in the midst of that. The image meaning that sin sort of locks you up in a, in a, in a closet with no air. And, 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 and what you really want is some way for a hole to be poked in, at least, to get some fresh air in that. And even if the smallest amount of fresh air comes in, it just changes everything. And he's saying that's what repentance and forgiveness of sins brings into a person's life. Because you see, when we're living in a self-reliant, self-dependent kind of way, a way we were never intended to live, that is in rejection of God, saying, I can do this, the stress becomes enormous. Because we have to make it all happen. Because we're responsible to make it all happen. And as then we build relationships with people, we're responsible in those relationships. How can I provide for them? How can I be a good father, a good husband, uh, a good a good parent, a good child, a good friend, a good employee. All of it depends upon me. How can I make this happen? I'm, de- I'm the one that has to make it work. And then I begin to think of my own failures in that. And what do I do with those failures and those regrets over time? Because none of us can make that work. None of us is perfect at that. We can all look back. So we either have to kind of erase them ourselves and pretend like they didn't really happen. And, oh, that's really not a big deal. Or somehow live with them. And how do you do that? And then what you know to be true about your own heart, your own moral failures, the anger that's unjustified. The lust that if you knew got out and other people knew about it would would devastate. The thoughts that you've had against others that think you love them 
if they only knew. And you live with that because you're a self-conscious person. It's just there. And then to realize you, you have to be all of that and yet you look down the road and you realize that other people who have been better than you have failed. You look down the road and you realize that other people who are more healthy looking than you got sick. And you look down the road and you realize that everybody eventually dies. And you, you look down the road and you see, this, isn't, this doesn't get any more pleasant as I look down, down the road. How can I make it work? And somehow you have to deal with that. And then when you get a glimpse of the fact that your self-dependence is dishonoring to the God who made you and said, trust me, then it brings a level of moral guilt. And you're there in that claustrophobic, no-air closet. And what Peter is saying is repent Be honest. Acknowledge you can't. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your failure. Acknowledge your weakness. And he says, you know, when you do that, and then you turn to God, the very one to whom you've been made to depend upon, made to turn to, he said it'll be like a big window opens in that closet. And you'll be refreshed. Psalm 32 is a psalm written by David before he repented of his sin. While he was still trying to be dependent upon himself. Here's how he describes the situation. Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long from day and night. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. He says, basically, and again, remember this situation with David. He had sinned with Bathsheba. He had had her husband killed. He had lied about it. And then there were months where he never acknowledged it. Didn't acknowledge it to God, it appears. Didn't acknowledge it to Bathsheba. Didn't acknowledge it to his family. Didn't acknowledge it to the prophet. He just lived in it. And it took the prophet coming to him and telling him a story and getting him angry. And then he saw it. And the prophet said to him, You're the man, David. You're that man. You're like that. That's your wickedness. That's your sin. That's how you haven't depended upon God to to satisfy you. You depended on on your own lusts and your own actions to satisfy you. And during that time, David was miserable. And still he didn't acknowledge God. Still he didn't acknowledge his sin. But then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for you. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of, of deliverance. Verse 1, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no 
deceit. David was saying, that's the blessing of God. And the blessing of God is in a sense God's acceptance of us. God speaking well of us. God receiving us into his very heart. And David is saying, yes, that's where I want to be. Jesus said, come to me. All you who are wearied and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now a yoke, not of an egg, but that big thing that would fit over the shoulders of an animal so that it would pull something. A yoke was then understood as that which pulled a great weight and a great burden. In fact, slavery then could be called a yoke. That is, burden, a great burden. Anything that was a great burden then could be referred to figuratively as a yoke, as your yoke. And so Jesus said, if you're burdened by this yoke of self-dependence, self-reliance, sin, where you think it depends upon you, where you think you're the one who has to make it all happen, and so you aren't dependent upon God, He says, here's what you need to do. You need to take off that yoke. And you need to put my yoke on you. You need to pull my burden. You know what the burden of Jesus is? Grace. The forgiveness of sins. Honesty. That's what it is. He says, put my yoke on you. Because it's light. It's light. Because what you're pulling is my righteousness given to you. You see, when we're pulling this other thing, this self-dependence, we're pulling our own righteousness. We're trying to make it happen. We're trying to show God that we're really competent. And we're trying to show everybody else we're really competent so they'll you know, really think we're hot. And, and so we're pulling that all the time. And Jesus said, okay, take that off. Be yoked to my righteousness because my righteousness is given to you. Be yoked to forgiveness of sins that's graced to you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. For I'm humble, I'm gentle. My burden is easy. (laughs) Take it upon you. You get the sense that David knew this when he wrote these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's saying, that's, that's refreshing. That's rest. Even in the midst of death, that's rest. Why? Because I know you're with me, God. And how do we know God is with us? Peter is saying, because Jesus is alive. And we know he's alive because this man walks. Because this man walks because of the power of Jesus. 
not my power, no other explanation other than the fact that it happened in the name of Jesus. So Luke writes this down because you and I will probably never see something like this happen. So Luke writes this down and he said this happened. This should have the same meaning for us that it had for them. Jesus is alive. Therefore, he rules and reigns. Therefore, he is the Christ. Therefore, he did die for the sins of sinners. Therefore, his righteousness is given to all those who trust in him. They may stand before God, accepted, justified, adopted into the family of God, filled with his spirit, conformed to the image of Christ, glorified one day. All of that because he says, your sins will be blotted out. Blessing. Times of refreshing will come in the presence of the Lord. Blessing. And Jesus will be sent for you. That is, when he comes back, he's coming for you. When he comes back, you'll be with him. So don't worry. Of course, Jesus prepared his disciples for this, prepares us for this. That he is present always, still with us. When he gave them, us as well, this meal. It was on the night that he was betrayed that he met with his disciples. Passover is set, but Jesus was going to change things. And so he took the bread that was there and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, He gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When the Apostle Paul tells us about this supper, he says that we're to to understand this as well. That as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is a whole theology book. To proclaim his death until he comes. Because in proclaiming his death, we're saying he was born. We're saying of a virgin. We're saying he was prophesied to come. We're saying at the fall, he's the very one of whom God said, there will come one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And when he died, he died for the sins of sinners in fulfillment of all of that. Like Isaiah says, like Peter said, all that was prophesied that he would suffer, he suffered, he fulfilled. And in the suffering of that, he paid for the sins of sinners there in that moment on the cross to take our eternal punishment. And then we're to proclaim that until he comes, which means he must be alive. Because how could he come if he's still dead? So he's still so he's alive. And if he's alive, that means that he didn't die for his own sins, but for ours. And once he had paid for them, then he was free to go. And so he's alive. And once alive, he was exalted on high where he rules and reigns. Ah, Therefore, there's forgiveness of sins in his name. Therefore, for those who repent, there's this refreshing that comes because we know that we're dependent upon him and his work and his righteousness and not our own. And a day will come when he'll come for us. Let me ask you to bow. You can close your eyes or not, because I'm not going to pray yet. I just want you to be quiet. But I want you to think in the presence of God.
I want you to think about where you're self-reliant. I want you to think about where you're self-dependent. I want you to think about how you've created God in your image and thus perhaps may not recognize him when he does show up in your life. I want you to think about how it is that you've stressed over so much and been anxious over so much because what you really think is that you should be controlling your life and you realize that you don't and how you haven't turned to trust in Christ, the very one who rules and reigns. I want you to think about your own sinfulness, the very things that have caused you to to be wrong and wicked because these things are against God. How you haven't trusted him and thus been impatient. How you haven't trusted him and thus been anxious. How you haven't trusted him and thus complained. How you haven't trusted him. To satisfy you, therefore, you've sought your own way of satisfaction through lust, through sin, through anger, through expressing your passions in ways that are not helpful to you, not helpful to others, not honoring to God. Again, I'm not heaping guilt on you. I'm just talking because I'm just a guy too. And this is our life. And what I want to do now is just to pray. And as I pray, I want us all to repent. Just be honest about that before God. And lay it before Him. So that times of refreshing can come. We'll trust Him with that. Father in Heaven, pray for me and for us. God, we believe that Jesus is alive. In fact, we believe he's present with us. We believe that he's given us this meal. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And God, we know this is bread and juice and we're not pretending it's anything other. But yet we know that since he said that that is true here, that he's with us spiritually, present now, as he always is. But but now we recognize that by this meal that he's given to us. On the day that that man was healed, Peter knew, that man knew, that Jesus was there. I pray we would know the same by way of this meal. And now, God, we just we lay before you uh, our sin. We lay before you our self-reliance and our self-dependence, and thinking that we have to make it all right, thinking that we have to be everything to everybody even be everything to you to prove that we're worthy of what you've given to us God we lay that before you and we recognize that just like that lame man we're lame (laughs) and all that we have comes from you that we didn't seek you you sought us that we weren't righteous we received the righteousness of Christ And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us then to turn from whatever wrongness we've identified in our life, whatever sin we've identified in our lives, it's still there for us, that you would enable us to turn from that, turn to you, Lord Jesus, to trust in you, to follow you, to take your yoke upon us, that we can be yoked to grace, to mercy, 
to forgiveness, to the righteousness that's in Christ. And that as we pull that along, it's just refreshing to know that you've accepted us, to know that we don't have to be all that in front of everybody else, to know that here's a company of people, all of whom who believe in you recognize we can't. So we don't need to put on airs in front of anybody. We don't need to impress each other. We all know that's silly. We lay it all before you. And pray that we would know your acceptance of us. We'd know your forgiveness of sins. We'd know the righteousness that's in Christ. Father, meet us here individually, collectively. Blot out our sins. Grant to us refreshment and the assurance to know that when Jesus comes, he's coming for us. Take this bread, this juice, Father, set it aside in a way that enables us to remember Jesus, that we might proclaim his death till he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table isn't the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it. All those who are weak and heavy laden and want to rest, um, willing to repent, to turn aside from all that isn't of Christ and to come to him. That is, all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as, as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And desires to turn from sin and to live in such a way that is honoring to Christ, which means that is dependent upon Him. Not self-reliant, not self-dependent, but dependent upon Him. That's true for you. Please come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and just pray that times of refreshment will come to you in the presence of of the Lord. Please come. Hmm. Pray with me, Father in heaven, thank you that that is the promise, a promise upon which we can count, a promise upon which we can stake our whole lives. That a day will come when Jesus will take us to be with himself. And that we will be with him, all who trust in him. So, Father, I pray for me, for us as a church, that we can be such people, that we can give testimony by our very lives that Jesus is alive as we live as those who have sins forgiven, who live refreshed because of what Christ has done, ever trusting that we belong to him and will be with him uh, forever. God, there are people in our congregation struggling with a variety of things in these days, I pray for Roger and Linda Maher, Father, as they grieve the death of their granddaughter who lived three days. Pray for their daughter, Melanie, and her husband, Nathan, that you would be with them. Grant them the grace they need. Yoke them in a way to Jesus that they know his lightness of load, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his empathy. His power. Please may they know that. God, for others who are suffering in various ways, we all have lists of them in our minds. Please be with them. 
for those who do ministry called in a very special way for the Podsis as they work with NAVS on campus for Rick and Amy as they serve with Young Life here in town for Brad as he works with Campus Crusade in Asia and we pray for all of them God that they would know your grace and today on a very special Sunday I pray you would just simply give them refreshment the load that they carry will be lightened and sweetened by the very presence of Jesus. Father, we thank you for our church. We pray you continue to cause us to do ministry, to give testimony that Jesus is alive. We pray you would supply to us every resource we need for that in terms of people, in terms of money, most especially in terms of your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us that we might give testimony that Jesus is alive and the gospel is true. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to our benediction is to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now look to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and 